This is the Water Into Wine podcast. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be describing a journey that I've been on over the past 12 years, telling you about how I started off as a non-believer in the spirit world and ended up as a believer. I'll give you all the clues you need to go and verify this for yourself and go and research for yourself as well, because I don't expect anybody to listen to what I say and just believe it. But I do want you to go and look for yourself because you'll find everything's there. Now, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and SoundCloud. Just search for Water Into Wine podcast. When the human race learns to read the language of symbolism, a great veil will fall from the eyes of men. They shall then know truth, and more than that, they shall realize that from the beginning, truth has been in the world unrecognized, save by a small but gradually increasing number appointed by the lords of the dawn as ministers to the needs of human creatures struggling to regain their consciousness of divinity. They're the words of Manly P. Hall, very, very, very profound man within Freemason. He was a 33-degree Freemason and studied this subject virtually all of his life. I'm also going to repeat some words now from Jesus Christ himself. Seek and you will find. Know what's in front of your face and what's hidden from you will be disclosed to you. I'll give you what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no hand has touched. Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they'll be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel. Congratulations to the one who came into being before coming into being. I am the light that is over all things. I am all. From me all came forth, and to me all attained. Split a piece of wood and I'm there. Lift up the stone and you'll find me there. It will not come by watching for it. It will not be said, look here or look there. Rather, the Father's imperial rule is spread out upon the earth, and the people do not see it. From the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Now, let's start this very simply. At the, end, at the complete end of this podcast, you'll understand exactly what those, those two very prominent figures are actually talking about. You'll understand it exactly. Now, the artwork. The first painting I really studied was Leonardo da Vinci's Madonna of the Rocks, or as it's sometimes called, sometimes called the Virgin of the Rocks. Now, da Vinci painted two pieces of art virtually identical. The da Vinci had been employed by the church of San Fresco Grande in Milan. Excuse my pronunciation. It's completely wrong, I know it is. They hired him to paint a picture of Jesus as a child, John the Baptist as a child, Jesus's mother, Mary, and the angel of the Lord. Now, it was common for artists of that period to personalise their art at this time. We, we don't think da Vinci, Leonardo, was any different, to be honest with you. In fact, it, when you look through his art properly, you can see it was exactly the same. He accepted the commission, painted the picture, and presented it to the church. Then the conflict started. The commissioners refused to pay for the work, claiming it had anti-Christian symbolism encoded within it. Now, da Vinci was required to paint a new version, otherwise he won't get paid, which he did after a few years of disagreements with the church. And both of these paintings are still in existence today. One is held in the Louvre in Paris, and the other one's in the National Gallery in London. It might help you during this conversation if you get the two pictures up on your screen. The only differences between the two paintings are the descriptions by the church, and, significantly, the hand of the Angel of the Lord. In one version, the hand points at one of the children. The church's description of the painting they commissioned ran, Mary, the mother of Jesus, sitting with her arm around John the Baptist, while Jesus sits next to the angel of the Lord. 
whereas Leonardo originally wrote it as Mary, the mother of Jesus, sitting with her arm around Jesus, while John the Baptist is sitting next to the angel of the Lord. Now, this confused the living daylights out of me, to be honest with you. Why would the church just swap the two children around? It didn't actually make sense to me. And why would they want the hand of the angel of the Lord removed? Now, in da Vinci's first version of the painting, where John the Baptist is baptising Jesus, it's John the Baptist who sits next to the angel of the Lord. So why would the church object to this? Why would they insist on it being changed? After a lot of digging, it seems that the reason the church swapped the children around is because in the original version, we can see the genitals of the child in Mary's arms. So if we can see Christ's genitals, then that would signify that Christ isn't divine. He would be, in effect, just a normal man. People were burned at the stake for less than this back then. Now, the church was clearly in the business of divinity of Christ, and yet while clearly wanting to confirm that Christ was divine and not human, why was the church so sensitive about allowing Christ's genitalia? But there's no suggestion that he lacked these manly attributes when he was on the cross. But the church was unable to accept the word by da Vinci for suggesting this apparently innocuous fact. The next piece of art I looked for was, uh, or I looked at, was da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. Now, he was actually following in the footsteps of the architect Vitruvius, hence the name of the drawing. Vitruvius was born in, in around 25 BC. Because Vitruvius believed that if the human body were divinely created, then temples and places of worship, if created to the same proportions, would also be divine. In da Vinci's own words about his drawing, because it was just a drawing, it was never a painting, the outstretched arms and legs of a man form a square and a circle. Now, the square symbolises the solid physical world, and the circle, the spiritual and eternal world. And man bridges the gap between these two worlds. Da Vinci took years out of his life learning to dissect human bodies so that he might be able to draw a picture of a man that was anatomically correct. And if you look at that picture, it is perfect. He measured all the different widths and lengths of every part of the human body until he calculated a common set of mathematical measurements. He worked out, for example, that the width of the human face is a third of its height and that the face is one-tenth and that the foot is one-sixth of the height of the body. One thing that I didn't really grasp was the significance of the square and the circle around the body. As da Vinci said himself, that the square represents the earthbound body, the terrestrial, and the circle represents a spirit world, the celestial. But I couldn't get my head around what, why would you just suddenly put those two in there? I recognised that da Vinci's figure was also arranged in the shape of a pentacle, which is a religious device of pagan origins, and it actually represents the elements of earth, air, fire and water, as does the square. When it points upwards, the figure symbolises that it's the spirit world that controls all these elements, not us. I also found out at the same time that the number five, the pentacles got five points, remember, was associated with the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, which is where we get the word Easter from. She was a pagan goddess. Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R, is actually pronounced Ishtar, and, and was also associated with the Roman goddess Venus, because the symbol used to represent both of these women was a pentacle or pentagram. Basically, it's the symbol was a byword for the feminine half of nature. Also, I stumbled across um, the planet Venus while I was in looking at this. 
the planet Venus, I don't know if you knew this, was um, was known as Earth's twin, Earth's evil twin, because it and the, there's, a, there's in fact, if you go to uh, YouTube and you type in Earth's evil twin, there's a documentary there that's fascinating. It tells you that uh, Venus was actually green and lush and had lovely, lovely gra uh, uh, land and grass and trees and rivers and loads of water there. And, and then over the years, because of a disaster that happened there, uh, volcanoes started to erupt and put in sulfuric acid into the air which killed everything and now it actually looks like what we're told hell looks like it's all it's a, just a bubbling mess now to be honest with you sulfuric clouds all around it it's about the same size as earth and no other planet's orbit is closer to earth than venus it's also brighter than any other planet or star and it's the first planet that can be seen in the evening and the last planet that can be seen in the morning. It therefore starts and ends each day, bookends each day. You also look into Latin when you come across this. You stumble across Latin. Lucifer, for example, the word Lucifer is Latin. It's Latin fair, the actual word, and my pronunciation is going to be off for that as well. And it means morning star. So the word Lucifer which I wonder whether, whether it's actually been changed to Lucifer, willingly, knowingly. Lucifer actually refers to the morning star, which is Venus. So Lucifer has got nothing to do with some sort of devil creature that's supposed to wander the earth. Oh, when we're while we're talking about the devil, I also came across facts that say that the, the uh, devil, the horned creature, when you go back in history every god every god had horns so it represented a god it didn't represent a devil it represented a god which is why the when the vikings notoriously came over here they had they had hats with horns on them because they wanted to be perceived as gods that was the reason behind it all now getting back to venus if you track the course of the planet venus over uh, if you track the course of it through the sky over an eight-year period, it draws a perfect pentacle. Now, both Earth and Venus, let, let me explain this, both Earth and Venus revolve around the sun, but as Venus is closer, it revolves at a faster pace. So over an eight-year period, the Earth, Venus and the sun are all in perfect alignment five times. Now, when you draw a line between these alignments, it makes a perfect pentacle or a pentagram because the orbit puts a circle around it. So this, this isn't something that somebody just thought up one day. This goes back thousands of years. The same applies for the planet Mercury as well. Mercury orbits the sun three times in 50 weeks so that the sun, Earth and Mercury are in perfect alignment six times over this period. Now, when you draw a straight line between the alignments, uh, the points which the alignments occur, you get the Star of David, or, as it used to be known, the Seal of Solomon. It was originally known as that. And again, that's a Star of David within a circle. The circle is the orbit of Earth. It's said to be called the Seal of Solomon after King Solomon, who built the first temple on the mount in Jerusalem. Um, and it was called Solomon's Temple, obviously. Now, as the legend is commonly told, King Solomon was given a ring by God made of brass and iron. Now, with this ring... He's supposed to have controlled invisible demons to help him move the heavy stones to build the temple. The sign on the ring was the seal of Solomon, so he, he carved this sign all over the walls surrounding Jerusalem. 
The symbol appears again, though, on the top of Saturn. Now, Saturn was twisted to say Satan. <laughs> this is, all goes back thousands of years. It's, there's been such a twist gone on, it's untrue. Now, on the top of Saturn is a cloud formation. Now, this, this cloud is actually made of rocks and dust and sand and grit and dirt and all sorts of nonsense, and it's just revolving around the top of Saturn. Smack bang in the centre, you can see the Seal of Solomon, this hexagonal shape where when you draw a line between all the corners, it makes, it makes the Star of David. This is actually called sacred geometry, what I'm explaining to you now. And what that means is nature working at the very foundation of life itself to create patterns on which all life itself is based. This is the mindset that informed Da Vinci when he drew the Vitruvian Man. This set of beliefs is as old as mankind itself. The pentacle also finds echoes and for many confirmations of a sacred geometry in star alignments. It's an interesting fact that these civilizations without telescopes must have had a very good eyesight to see these alignments. Very good eyesight. You can even see them in snowflakes. If you take a snowflake, for example. Now, it's been said incorrectly that every snowflake is different. But when you break it down to its basic geometric shape, every snowflake is exactly the same. The seal of Solomon. Search for some snowflakes. Put them in front of you right now on your computer. You'll see exactly what I mean. They are all the same shape. It's the same geometric pattern repeating itself over and over again. And a beehive. Pull up a picture of a beehive and you'll see that the part where the, the, part where the bees go is actually a hexagonal shape. It's, it's, it's the seal of Solomon. A wasp nest, the seal of Solomon. I also found out that the five-pointed star with a small circle in its centre was used on fighter planes as an American insignia during the Second World War. Now, the pentagram can be traced back to around 3,500 BC. It seems that signs and symbols, when they refer to something deemed important, are remarkably durable. Now, in the case of the pentagram, especially when within a circle, transforming it into a pentacle, has often been a symbol of the Mother Earth Goddess. It represents, in basic forms, Mother Nature. Da Vinci's sacred geometry, accordingly, was a rational response of his age to nature, a higher idea of which Da Vinci would have felt himself to be an integral part. This was an intellectual belief, as we know, that greatly preceded his times. Nothing da Vinci will have done in art will have been very far from the divine semiology of his spiritual and intellectual life. And it's with these thoughts the next painting I looked at was The Last Supper. Now the basis for my original interest in this particular painting came from reading The Holy Blood and Holy Grail and The Da Vinci Code, obviously. These two books reveal that it was Mary Magdalene who sits next to Jesus. However, when I look closer at the work, something else really grabbed me. Why Da Vinci painted Jesus' disciples in sets of three? Now, there's no proof that it is Mary Magdalene sitting next to Jesus. It's just these two, these two books have said that, and whether it is or where it isn't, I don't think we'll ever find out, really. But I want to know why he picked them in sets of three. Now, the art world says that he painted them in pictures in, in this particular work of art in sets of three. It's above a doorway, by the way. I think it's in Milan in a dinner hall. He just painted it because he wanted them to dry 
before he moved on to the next lot, which seems, you know, you could paint them individually and do that, couldn't you? You didn't have to put them in sets of three. So I think there was a deeper meaning. Now, all I could actually think about was the Vitruvian man. Da Vinci had spent years dissecting human bodies to do one sketch. He was a profound believer in geometry. He can't have just grouped his figures in a random way for such an important subject. So I think there was a much deeper reasoning. I noticed that Jesus was the centre of the picture and that all the, the trinities, in some sense, revolved around him. It's as if he's the centre of these 12 people's universe. There are some that say that there never were, in fact, 12 apostles. Instead, the number is significant for reasons that the number 12 has significance in astronomy that greatly antedates any Christian symbolism. It's even possible that da Vinci, while he may have been following the orthodoxy that there were 12 apostles, uh, in fact originally 13, believe it or not, the significance of the pagan number may well have appealed even more to his mind. Because magic numbers may have seemed to him to underpin the architecture, not only of the world he lived in, or the context of the Last Supper, but for example the planets above us. Now, as, as such, it's not a bad starting point to assume that the painting was not only a narrative of a supposedly real event, but an allegorical painting of all that da Vinci believed to be true of life and our place in the universe. The pre-Christians believed that all parts of the universe were interlinked and belonged to a single mastery. As such, they shared the same origin and, as human beings, we were just a small link in a very much larger chain. Any symbolism that alluded to that truth had the advantage of having been endorsed by observations over thousands of years. So what I'm trying to say is instead of identifying mythical people, the painting perhaps also depicted the 12 months of the year and the houses, 12 houses of the zodiac. The four groups of three disciples thus represented the four seasons. Now if you look at Jesus in this painting, one hand is pointing upwards and the other one points downwards. This struck me as being a bit of a symbolic arrangement rather than being a natural way to eat food. It was a little bit later on that I recalled a pagan-inspired phrase, as above, so below. This is a visual representation of that, as above, so below. It's taken to mean that all that is on earth mirrors that which is above it and around it. The same idea features in Christian thinking, but the idea behind it is much older. Once again, it seems to me that da Vinci was going a bit off-road, really, with his interpretation of this brief to paint a merely Christian story. Other symbolic language closer to his own understanding of life were finding place in his paintings for his patrons. I began to wonder which other famous artists of those times may also have been taking advantage of their paymaster's readiness to pay big money for beautiful paintings to suggest what the, are clearly pre-Christian ideas. Botticelli knew da Vinci personally and was also strongly influenced by pre-Christian ideals. I visited the Uffizi Museum in Florence. I went to see Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. Now, if you get The Birth of Venus up on your screen in front of me, you'll see exactly where, what I'm talking about. In The Birth of Venus, you see the goddess Venus. She's, don't forget, also the symbol for the five-pointed star or pentagram, and thus the female half of nature. She actually stands on a shell which I found out symbolises baptism or rebirth, with a nymph or Mother Nature on one side, while she's floating on the water with the wind or air on the other side. It's an allegorical work. This realisation made me very curious. Why were these artists representing pagan beliefs in sometimes very Christian paintings? Or in the case of Botticelli, 
Why was an overtly pagan painting so revered in such a religiously Christian age? Was pagan symbolism just naturally accepted as part and parcel of the Christian myth, or were some of these artists not really Christian at all? We touched on the pagan phrase as above so below in, in relation to Christ's hands in the Last Supper. Now this isn't the only place this gesture can be seen. It's common in churches from that period and earlier, but it doesn't make it any less ambiguous. Why had Christianity, a religion where orthodoxy was so jealously and punitively guarded, allowed this significantly pagan notion to make its way into almost every church in Europe? It was then that I began to see that the greatest story ever told consisted of elements far older than Christianity itself. That's where we'll leave episode two of the podcast this week. Next week, we shall talk about the birth of Christ, the nativity scene. For example, what colour was Christ? Where was he born? I'll tell you the real meanings that you can research, the real meanings behind certain words that you just accept. That's all coming up next week in the Water Into Wine podcast.